How many of y'all just got like super nervous when you saw me bring this out? You're like, oh my gosh, he uses so many words without paper. What is going to happen today? Well, I promise it'll be long as usual, so don't get your hopes up. But uh, I, I will tell you this, I am glad this is the last week of this series. Uh, I know it's been a lot. I don't know if you know it or not, but there's been a lot of like big stuff in this last eight weeks. And I don't know if you feel overloaded. I feel overloaded. I think for the first time in 20 years of doing this game, uh, like six weeks into a series, I was like, come on. I felt like I'd been playing basketball down at like a mile high, you know, like what in the world? We got to get through this. So um, I'm excited about our topic today though, because I really do think that um, what we're going to talk about today is what it's all about. Everything drives to this moment. And I think about what it really means to live in a Christian way, an authentic Christian way that's grounded in metaphorical historical interpretations, that understands these big words of our faith tradition are good words, no matter how they've been used in the past, that they can be good words, that words like the Bible, words like faith, sin, the cross, that these are really powerful metaphors that can speak to the human condition. And so I want to thank those of you that have stuck it out You've stuck it out. I've heard people tell me, like, I had to listen to that, like, twice. I was like, oh, dear Lord, that is awful. But uh, so, so good to be together to do this. So um, today, we're going to continue talking about this idea uh, of salvation, right? So last week, we said that salvation is kind of a metaphor, and a fresh perspective understands it as transformation in two dimensions, right? We said transformation in two dimensions. The first is, like, our personal lives that salvation as a metaphor for transformation speaks to a personal way, a transformed way of seeing others, of seeing God, of seeing the world. We talked about this big idea of living east of Eden, where we live under the power of sin and guilt and shame and the lie of separation, and how salvation really and what Jesus represents is victory over those things that can that really set in our hearts and lives, produce a bad cycle, and we end up wounding other people. But salvation is really about transforming our view, right? How do we find our way back from east of Eden living? And really that idea of personal transformation is really grounded in this question that plagues us oftentimes is, what happened to me? <laughs> like, what's wrong with me? I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I feel that way all the time, right? Um, but that's the idea. But today we want to focus in on this second dimension, which is salvation as transformation within community, right? Kind of a social political understanding. Now, I know I just said the word political. Some of you gulped. Some of you threw up a little bit in your mouth. You're not sure what to do, what's going to happen. But I hate to break the news to everybody, but Jesus was an incredibly political person. His, his death was a political death. And we talk about politics not in the sense of what political party you are, but just in this idea of social organization. Like, what does it mean to ground and organize ourselves, and what are the guiding values and principles, right? So I can promise you today I'm not going to tell you to be an independent or a Democrat or Republican or anything like that, okay? I'm not going to do that. In fact, you're probably going to hear stuff that's going to frustrate you maybe because you want me to say those things, all right? Um, in fact, the closing song that Mickey has for you today, it is one, it, it's a haunting song. It's a song that like really is convicting us about what, where do our loyalties lie when we think about community and politics, all right? And so the big question of salvation as it relates to community is what's wrong with us, right? What's wrong with us? What, what happened to us? Now, that is, <laughs> that's not an easy question to answer, right? 
Um, it's not like we're going to cover one, that one. But really what, what happens is we have to think through, like, we recognize that there are issues in our world that affect and create human suffering, right? And that's really what we're driving home, and that really is, I think, the heart of the Christian tradition. The heart of Jesus is suffering in the world. That's why, if I can use this and say this, Christianity is so unique in that we serve and we surrender our lives to an image of a God who dies naked, suffering on a cross. I don't know if you know that, but that's very unique to the world religions, right? Like, our God is the biggest loser, right? And some, so that's the heart of it, the cross, that image. We've talked all about that. So let me ask you this question as we get started. When was the first time that you were ever afraid of another group of people? Have you ever experienced that? Now, I know I have. Like, I'm raised in a certain environment that talks about the group that I am, but, and, and, and we create other groups. So when was it in your life that you maybe first came to the realization that you were part of one group and there were people that were part of another group? And that's really the heart of what we want to get at today. That knowledge is kind of like a type of knowledge of good and evil, that somehow we find ourselves in a group that recognizes we're different than another group. So we're not just individuals that live east of Eden living, right? We're actually groups of people that live east of Eden living. And east of Eden communities, right? Communities that ultimately are bound by sin, guilt, shame, the lie of separation, death, like that way of thinking. Those groups, like we organize an other out of fear, right? So we tend to organize our communities, we tend to gather one another, and we're, we're, we identify ourselves based upon what we're not a lot of times, and we do this out of fear. And the reality is that fear is a very powerful, powerful tool of what we've called sin, right? If sin is a spiritual reality, right, fear is, is almost like ground zero for like the number one tool to create suffering, because fear leads to greed, like there's not enough. There's not enough for everybody. Fear leads to exclusion. This person's going to taint me. We scapegoat. We want to blame other people. Fear leads to elitism. Well, I'm better than this group. My group has the right truth. My group is, has the right way of thinking and organizing and solving all the problems, etc. right? So a fresh perspective on salvation really we have to start with an understanding of something that I've talked about in the past that I call, it's called the dome of meaning, right? So it's time for some pictures. Do y'all like, I'm a terrible artist, all right? Terrible artist. I need somebody that can actually draw to do this, but we're going to run through this really, really quick. I thought somebody was coming up to draw for me just there. That's good. All right, so here's the thing. There's three domes that we exist in, right? And the first one is this bottom dome, right? Oh, I just messed that up. See, gosh, I got to, oh my goodness, terrible. All right, it's Pictionary. Ready? Here we go. All right, so the first dome that we live in, right, is this dome of my story. This is the small self, right? This is the small self. This is the private small self. This is me, Ryan. And it's all the individual titles that I hold or that I've held, right? It's, it's, it's the, the search for significance through power, prestige, and possessions, right? 
It's this idea that my identity is grounded in what I own. It's grounded in my home, what it looks like. It's grounded in the degrees that I have. And it's around personal identity. It's who I am as an individual, what makes me me. It's not bad. It just is what it is, okay? So that's this first. This is my story. It's the I am of existence, okay? Then we have this second dome, right, that we live in. And we call this dome our story, and we might say our stories, but it's the our story. And if this is about me, right, this is about us. And it's us as I define it. So Christian, right, that would be our story. Muslim, that's an our story. That's a group, right? So inside of this is this collection of me's that make up us's, right? So we have the us of America, Right? We have the us of Colorado. We have the us of northern Colorado. We have the, the, the us of those who tune in online. Okay? We have our individual religious stories and communities. These are our group identities. Right? I'm male. I'm white. I'm heterosexual. Right? Those are all like group identities. And group identities aren't bad. Okay? <laughs> they expand this notion of the self, right? of, of my story. They ground us in a culture, like they tell us kind of, hey, here's how we dress and here's how we talk and, and they create communication patterns and ways in which we exist, right? So these aren't bad things, right? But it's just, this is our story. Now, again, these two domes are not bad. They're just not enough. <laughs> and what happens is we tend to get stuck in these domes. There's an entire book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes, and if you ever wonder why that's in there, what's the point of it? Ecclesiastes is basically a cautionary tale for what happens when we get stuck living in our story or my story, the futileness of it, that if we just get stuck thinking about my people, my group, my wisdom, my knowledge, my power, my prestige, it's all vanity of vanities, and it leads to just this existence of like lack of meaning. Now, there is this thing, this last dome that we'll, we'll, this is what we're going to talk about today, and it's the story, right? And it's that reality of, of which encompasses all of our stories, right? And here's the problem. When we think that our story, whether it's Christianity, I'll draw the little excuse there for you. I can't believe I was able to draw that, by the way. It's a proud moment. Put that one on the fridge, okay? All right? When we think our story of money and economics, when we think our story of our nation, I'm not going to try and draw the United States of America, that would be terrible. When we think that our story is the story, you know what happens? We start to fear their story. Oh, I got some mmms on that one. I appreciate that. I was like as good as an amen as I'm going to get with this group. I totally appreciate that. Right? I'm going to say that again. It's on the screen. When we think our story, no matter what it is, whether it's my whiteness, whether it's my maleness, whether it's my middle classness, my upper classness, whatever it is, whether it's my gen, whatever that story is, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Islam, whether it's agnosticism, atheism, when we think that our story is the big story, we start to fear their story. And here's the thing that's where fear of others sets in. And when fear of others sets in, right, when we feel threatened by their story, right, when, when that sticks in, all of a sudden we start believing, well, our story is the big story. Christianity is the big story. 
We just got to get everybody to believe like me. And then even worse, like within Christianity, we have about 4 million little R groups. <laughs> and if I can just get everybody to think like my story, our story, and that, then it's going to be good. So rather than recognizing that our story is part of the story, we get stuck here in this area. Now, really healthy R stories like move us <laughs> out of me <laughs> into us and move us out of us into the, right? That's what really healthy groups do, right? Because when we start to fear them, what happens? That's the seed. That's the seed of dehumanizing and oppressing behavior in our world. And I know some of you are like, when's he going to give us a Bible verse? It's coming, I promise, all right? I promise. But this is a universal pattern of reality, right? Dehumanizing and oppressing behavior always begins with fear. It's when I'm afraid of that country I'm afraid of those people. I'm afraid of that economic system. I'm afraid. Now, a fresh perspective understands that group fear, when that sets in and you combine it with power, when you take that fear and you infuse it with power and money and influence, what does that lead to? Systemic injustice. And systemic injustice is the opposite of peace on earth. And if the angelic announcement of Jesus was peace on earth, <laughs> right, the story, and we're stuck here, we have a problem. In fact, this is what happened when Christianity gained a foothold through the Roman Empire in the fourth century, right? When all of a sudden you take a, a small, a very tiny, tiny group of people that are trying to figure out how to survive, and they're writing somewhat propagandist material, okay, like in the Gospels, when you have a crowd saying, his blood be upon us and our children, like that's the earliest followers of Christians trying to figure out how to survive amongst a broader religious tradition. And that's kind of an innocuous statement when you have no power. But when all of a sudden you're infused with power and you have a text that says, the blood of, our, of God is on us and our children, what happens? Now we have imperialism and we have the seed of tremendous anti-Semitism that took place and has taken place throughout Christian tradition, right? It's a great example of when you infuse power and money and wealth with fear of the other, you get systemic injustice. You get laws that the point of the law is in injustice. The point of the law is to, is to propel a certain group forward, my group, and hold a certain group back. So a fresh perspective on salvation recognizes, okay, we got a problem. We got to deal with that. And here's the beauty of Jesus in the Christian tradition. It deals with it with this idea, this word, kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. Now, I know that's a patriarchal word, so if kingdom is hard for you, I totally get that. Uh, you could think of it as the reign of God, right? But in your text, in the, in the Bible, you're going to find kingdom of God. Or in Matthew, you'll find kingdom of heaven, which has been somewhat problematic because Matthew is part of a Jewish community, and they don't really like to say the word God, so he changed God to heaven, which made us then think it was about something out there, right? But probably the most earliest authentic way of Jesus talking about it was the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God is the central storyline of Jesus. And what I would say is that this is what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. And what's happened is we think that we're the kingdom of God down here, like Christianity. Now, that'll mess with some of us, right? But I'm here to say that the kingdom of God is not Western Christianity. 
It's just not. In fact, I don't think it's Christianity at all. I think Christianity is part of the kingdom of God and can propel us into the kingdom of God, and really healthy forms of it do that. But the kingdom of God is much, much bigger. So here we are with the Bible, Mark, our our first gospel account of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, we see the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and this is what it says. After John had been arrested, that's important because Historically speaking, Jesus probably started as a disciple of John the Baptist, and a lot of his understanding of the kingdom of God would have been shaped by his mentor. That's how, what's how life works. We shouldn't think that it would have been any different than for Jesus. Now, when John's arrested and something happens in Jesus's life and his mentality shifts, because John would say the kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Get ready for it. But Jesus changed that message. And Jesus comes and he says, this is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not that it's coming, but it's here. And he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Similar language to what John would have said. Repent and believe in the gospel. So for Jesus, this kingdom of God wasn't something that would come in the future, but it was something that was already present. And this idea of repent here, when Jesus says repent, we have to kind of push away some of our conservative, maybe fundamentalist Christian way of thinking about the word repent, that is to be sorry for your individual personal sins, right? Because that's, that's really the common meaning now, but that certainly wouldn't have been what Jesus would have been saying, or even Mark, right? It's a better way to understand, like, there's this turning right? There's this returning. There's this idea that our systems and our structures and the way we're living is no longer a part of this kingdom of God. We've, we've gotten so focused, we don't recognize it. And so there's a turning. Marcus Borg in his book, The Heart of Christianity, he says that this idea is related to the Hebrew Bible's understanding of return, returning from God, returning from exile. Its Greek roots suggest to go beyond the mind you have right, which is a really beautiful metaphor that we see in other places, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so it's important to recognize that the kingdom of God, this idea of the kingdom of God, is and was a religious and political metaphor, I think, for the story. It was the way in which Jesus would understand, because these folks lived under a real kingdom. There was an under, it wasn't metaphor, like, that was real. That was language that made sense for them. And so this, this metaphor was about a way of living in this world that affects unjust systems. And it was the unjust systems that for Jesus would lead to debt. He was always ministering to a peasant class that were in incredible danger, living well below subsistence, and it would lead to a lack of food. So two of the great parts of this amazing prayer that we have, we call the Lord's Prayer, are what? Right? Give us our daily bread. That was a very real prayer that the kingdom of God on earth was about everybody having enough food for today. And it was about the forgiveness of debts because debt was a major, major problem. And so this kingdom, right, under which the peasants that Jesus ministered to was very real. And it was very much the domination system that was ruled by powerful and wealthy elites. So Jesus comes in and he says, the kingdom of God is here. It's a different kingdom. Another scholar that I love to follow, John Dominic Cross, and he would always say, it's, it's never kingdom without God, and it's never God without kingdom. It's religious and political. There was no separation of church and state. It involved God's way, as Jesus understood God, of organizing and treating people. And it was contrary to the high value of the group. Because there was no separation of church and state, right? So you'd have, there was, there's, 
it wasn't about forcing people to believe a certain way. Like the kingdom of God, Jesus, it wasn't about, oh, I just got to get everybody to be Jewish. That was a, not a Jewish way of thinking. Within ancient Judaism, there was, there was, they had a much better understanding of this story, this big idea of God who was kind of present and working. The way they envisioned God was God was using all the nations of the world that one day we would all be together. Like they had a really great understanding of this. It's like Christianity, we kind of, we went a little off kilter at times. Right? And so this beautiful metaphor, the kingdom of God, right, is basically this. What would life on earth be like if God were king, as Jesus understood God, and not the rulers of this world? Everybody would have enough and there'd be no debt. <laughs> That's peace on earth, right? Like that, it, it, it's so, and in one sense, it's a really simplistic understanding, right? It's God's distributive justice in contrast to the systemic injustices of the kingdoms of this world. I read this, that the opposite of God's justice is not God's mercy. We often think like that. We've been told to think, well, God is a just God, and, and, and we can, because of that, then we like, oh, oh, but God's merciful as well. But here's the thing. I've come to believe that the opposite of God's justice is not God's mercy. It's human injustice. It's human injustice. And that is the Jewish vision. That is the vision of Jesus so the kingdom of God, the story, right, the big story, is the distributive justice of God that was dreamed about by the great figures of Judaism, Moses, the prophets, and for us, for those of us in the Christian tradition, Jesus. It's peace on earth. It's where all of these groups <laughs> recognize, oh, we're just groups who are part of a bigger story, that we're actually one, that there's a unity to how we live. And the way in which Christians would identify this kingdom of God in the earliest forms was a very simple creed. Very, very simple creed, but it's very powerful. It was a simple creed that said, Jesus is Lord. So if you were, if you were within Judaism, right? If you were within Rome, if you were a peasant, and you said Jesus is Lord, that affirmation was to pull you into this kingdom of God to pull you into a way of seeing. And it was the earliest Christian creed. It's central to Paul's writings. It's central to the New Testament. In fact, one of the most beautiful ancient hymns that we have is found in this little letter called Philippians. And, and some of you have heard it, and it's called the Christ hymn. And it's, it's about the idea that, that, that Jesus took on flesh and, and, and surrendered all they could have, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but laid it all down, was obedient even to death on a cross. And then it says, because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This image, above every name. Think of names of groups, right? Above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And this isn't like bowing under the tyrant. It's bowing in understanding of the beauty and love and grace of, of a distributed world where, where everybody has enough. And those in heaven and on earth and under the earth... And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, to the kingdom of God. Now, this, this, this phrase, Jesus is Lord, right? So, Jesus is Lord over it all. Now, Lord was a title for the Roman emperor, a super political meeting, right? We say it now, like we sing it. We're like, Jesus is Lord. Like, it's wonderful, right? It's so beautiful. But this was a, a massive, massive, like big political deal, like on a path to martyrdom. 
Because Caesar was called Lord, Caesar was called Savior of the world, Caesar was called Son of God, Caesar was called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Caesar was spoken of as the one who brought peace on earth. So the earliest followers of Jesus took all these titles and they said, nope, sorry, not us, Jesus. And that meant the way of Jesus. No, the Roman peace, no, that's not the kingdom of God. That's just another one of these little groups. Rome, wonderful, it'll pass. No, but this won't pass. This will always be. It is the very ground of existence. We're all existing within it. And the sooner we can catch that, (laughs) the more peace we'll have. And so to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not Lord, right? For us, it's this crazy idea that, well, Jesus is president, (laughs) right? Jesus is chairman of the board, Right? It's a pledge of allegiance of sorts to the way of Jesus, to living under this vision of God for this world. And so, given that, given this issue that we have of fear, right, a fresh perspective emphasizes that salvation is not from something necessarily, although that's part of it. It's from our own violence. We talked about that last week. But it's for something. It's for the building of the kingdom of God. Now, building is a metaphor. It exists, okay? It's almost like the unwrapping of the kingdom of God. It's probably a better metaphor for us today. That the kingdom of God is present all around us. That's the story we talked about last week, right? Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. It's not, I mean, seeing and entering, those are used at different times, but it's always about something that's present among us. And so Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is a part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is talking about being salt and light, and he says this to the people, Right? He says, you are the salt of the earth, right? But if salt loses its taste, what can it be seasoned? Like, how how does it do that? If it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, he says, you're the light of the world. That's frightening for some of us, right? Because we've always thought, oh, Jesus is the light of the world. But Jesus is like, oh, would you stop it? (laughs) You're the light of the world. You're a city on on a mountain that can't be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket. It's set on a lampstand where it gives light to shine all in the house. Just so, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, that work, that which you've been called for, and glorify your heavenly Father. Or and, and unwrap, expose the kingdom of God. Glorify your heavenly Father. It's the same thing. We think glorify the heavenly Father. is like, well, we just got to sing the right song, give you all the glory. Lord, I give you all the glory. Like, what in the world is that going to do? I mean, it's wonderful and we feel good. But if it doesn't transform us to enter into the second part of salvation, it's useless. It's useless. I mean, even James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he got it. And he said in James chapter 2, as he's writing this, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, <laughs> and every other person in the way you identify, what good is it for any of us if someone says they have faith but don't have works, can that faith save them? That's a, that's a passage that we don't like to talk about when we talk about, oh, salvation to go to heaven through faith and grace and God alone and not by works. But like, wait a second. No, there's something about salvation that's about the kingdom of God, about justice, about inclusion, about like enough bread and no debt. He says, if a brother or sister or someone has nothing to wear and no food for the day, And one of you says to them, oh, go in peace and keep warm and eat well. I'll pray for you. 
But if you don't give them, give them the necessities of the body, what good is it? What good is it? So you come and you give your heart to the Lord. You invite Jesus into your heart and you sing songs, but you don't do anything to pull people into this space of distributive justice. What good is it? So faith of itself. Also, if it doesn't have works, it's just dead. It's just dead. That's, a, that's big. Indeed, someone might say, you have faith and I have works. Demonstrate your faith to me without works. Demonstrate it. Basically, he's saying, you can't. Nice try. <laughs> but I'll demonstrate my faith to you from my works. And it's that idea that they'll know you're Christians by your love. Right? Not love of singing or going to church, but this kind of love, sacrificial love. So, so here's the thing. A fresh perspective on salvation. Don't miss this. A lot of words so far. A fresh perspective on salvation. It starts with what we talked about last week, personal transformation. But that personal transformation moves us towards God's vision of peace on earth. I was thinking about this. If we really had to come up with a good vision and mission statement for our church, like what are we all about? Like wouldn't it be great? Peace on earth. Like that's our mission. That's what we're here for. Peace on earth. We're peacemakers. Peace on earth. It's almost too easy. <laughs> it just, it doesn't take a big retreat. It doesn't take a big marketing firm. It's like, what's our mission? Peace on earth. Come on and be a part of it. <laughs> it kind of works, right? <laughs> like it's kind of irritates us. Like how much money we've spent in the past in any work I've been into, like identify these things. Like, well, it feels like that angelic announcement. That's going to last, right? That's a keeper. That's a good one. God had a good marketing firm on that one. Peace on earth. I love that. I give my life to that. And that's, that's what salvation is about. It's, it's understanding that I've got to get out from under all the sin talk and the guilt and the shame and that lie of separation. I've got to get past all that. I get it. That's my story. If I don't deal with my story and the ego, I'm stuck here. And at best, I'll get to here, but then I'm going to get stuck with all my... But I've got to get past that. So that's taken care of. We get it. Jesus comes and exposes the lie of all that and brings us into our story. And then he continues the expose by saying, hey, Rome's messed up and religion is messed up. I get what it's trying to do. It's trying to help you with the guilt, sin, shame, whole thing, but let's take care of that because all that does is just lead to fear and violence. And let's talk about the kingdom of God and what it would look like. And I'm gonna give you a little prayer to help you understand it. We call that prayer the Lord's Prayer, and we miss the subversive, universal beauty. You know, the Lord's Prayer has nothing in it about Jesus. Like any faith, any religion that believes in the oneness of God could pray the Lord's Prayer, and it works. Some of you are like, mine's like, wait a second. <laughs> you, don't, you don't believe me. You're like Googling it right now. It's true. All right. So the personal side of it, freedom from the power of sin, guilt, shame, the lie of separation, moves us into the communal, societal, political side of it where we might see and participate in the kingdom of God, ending these unjust social systems and creating just social systems for human flourishing. That's salvation. That's salvation. So the God revealed in Jesus cares about justice deeply. Why? Because the God revealed in Jesus cares about suffering. That's why it's a suffering servant. That's why that imagery is so powerful to us because if there's one thing we get about shared humanity is suffering. At the, high, at the most basic level, it's just not getting what you want. <laughs> and so at the end of the day, salvation, this is why I think it's such a beautiful way to kind of culminate this series. Salvation, the Christian tradition, these beautiful words are ultimately about ending human suffering. 
where the lion lays down with the lamb, where we beat our swords into plowshares. It's all there. <laughs> but we just happen to be the most kind of like, <laughs> we, we, we tend to be the most like individualistic society in the history of the planet. I mean, that's just the truth, sorry. So it's really hard for us to get there. We just want to make it about heaven, but heaven is about non-suffering. Does that make sense? Like the, the metaphor of heaven is about non-suffering, and that's the promise of the kingdom. But here's the thing, like this fresh perspective, this salvation asks a lot of our everyday normal lives. It asks a lot of it. It's why Jesus was taken to the cross. It's why so many of the earliest followers of Jesus suffered and died for their faith. Because salvation like this raises our consciousness. It raises our awareness of what causes human suffering, right? So a fresh perspective on salvation, it, it's about raising our consciousness of what is breaking peace in the world. Like, I've moved past this idea of my life has to be marked by sin, shame, guilt, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm clean, I'm good there. That's wonderful. And I can tell everybody their lives don't have to be marked by that either. But now I've got to be conscious of what is, what is hindering the breakthrough of the kingdom of God. And so I, I, I have to understand how do unjust social systems work, including our own, right? Because that affects the lives of people. Racism, sexism, homophobia, poverty. How does the system perpetuate those realities unknowingly or maybe knowingly? Because systems ultimately affect how we think about and perceive not only others, but ourselves. You think about, like, go back in your mind, if you're old enough, if you're old like me, or older, right? I'm 22, right? <laughs> this family was walking in our neighborhood with, like, a, a, had a baby, you know? And, like, at first, it was, like, this moment I realized, like, my, my kids are now, like, 20 and 19. I was like, holy crap, man, I have not pushed a bassinet in a long, what do they call it now? It's not even a bassinet. I was like, Wow. But if you can go back long enough, like think about television in, in, in the however far back you can go and ask yourself, how have women been portrayed in the media? What jobs were they allowed to have on television? Think about how, how people of color and minorities were portrayed in television. What roles did they have? What jobs did they have? Like that's a system issue. You see, and like it perpetuates how we think about ourselves and how we think about others. Think about the LGBTQ community. We're in Pride Month. Think about how Pride Month has been portrayed and, and been handed to you. Like, how does that shape and affect us? Like, that's conscious raising, consciousness raising and awareness. Like, wow. Like, do we understand the disparity of wealth in the world and how that affects poverty and human suffering? Do we understand that during the pandemic in the world, that the top 1% of the wealth in the world, the top 1% increased to $45.9 trillion at the end of 2021. What that means is that the top 1%, the wealth of the top 1% increased by more than $12 million during the pandemic, or it went up one-third during the pandemic. Like, it's not... <laughs> It asks a lot of us, what's going on there? In our own nation, the top 1% hold 32.9% of the wealth. The bottom 90% hold about the same at 30%. 
Maybe we ask questions about that. Because personal salvation, like, and, and a fresh perspective on salvation is pushing us and saying, oh, guess what? As, as people who are part of the empire now, who exist in that wealth category, like salvation asks us to use our wealth and influence to bring about change. Like, and that's tough. That's tough. It asks us to not support policies that are in the narrow self-interest of a few people. Salvation asks us to live under the politics of compassion and the kingdom that Jesus portrayed. That's the politics of the kingdom of God. Suspicious of the ways wealthy and powerful classes use their power and wealth to structure systems that are in their own self-interest. Like, and that's me. Come on. That's me. Like, it's not somebody else out there. I'm white, heterosexual male. Come on. Like, I, I couldn't have it any better in the country I grew up in. The system and structure is for me. That's not, I don't, listen, I don't feel bad about that. I don't internalize that, but I recognize it. And I want to be like Christ, who set aside every privilege to offer us a way forward. That's why I can't understand why we have such a difficult Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, he set aside it all, laid it all down. And that's what we're called to follow after. So the politics of this way of salvation is not concerned with privilege and power and prestige. That's the my story stuff. Come on. Right? But it's concerned with compassion for the least of these. Right? In its general form, it's shaped, right? The politics of compassion are shaped by a vision of Jesus' passion for this earth, for the kingdom of God, the whole thing. It was a justice that was marked by enough bread and freedom from debt, which meant freedom from worry and sorrow, which is what Jesus would call heaven, <laughs> which is what a peasant in the first century would call heaven. And so in our world, if I can get quite specific, what this fresh perspective on salvation calls us to is listen, gosh, you're going to get mad at me, but here we go. We've done it for seven weeks. Let's, let's go for it. When it comes to health care, if we're going to follow the kingdom of God, that means we ought to support health care systems for marginalized and uninsured people. When we're talking about the environment, we ought to be supporting policies that tend to and care for the earth, understanding that we manage it as a resource that doesn't belong to us. It's part of the story. It's not part of my story or our story. It's the story. A fresh perspective on salvation pulls us into economic justice, the just distribution of the resources of this earth because it's not mine, it's not ours, that everybody has enough material essentials, even if some people have more. Listen, please don't hear me. The people are going to have more. It's okay. I am not against that. I'm not against that. People have bigger houses than me, and I have a bigger house than some people. That, that's, I, that's not a problem, I don't think, in this idea of the kingdom, right? The problem is when you don't have the essentials, when we live in a world where we have billion-dollar yachts and poverty where people don't have food tomorrow, right? It's where there's not material essentials for everyone, right? So that's economic justice. It's not, well, let's give everybody all the same. That, that's just a, to me, that's a kind of a, a way to destroy like a really difficult com like conversation that has to be had around distributed justice. We have to think about imperial power as American Christians because whether we like it or not, like we're the Rome. <laughs> like America is the Rome of our day. And I don't mean that in any way to be pejorative, meaning negative or positive. It just is what it is. When you think about Rome as the superpower of the day, 
holding all the power, holding all the wealth, right? We are that. And are we using that to help the world or for our own self-interest? So ultimately, a fresh perspective on salvation is a politically engaged spirituality. I don't know why I keep touching this. I have no idea. It's just here. So I'm just like, ultimately, this. Uh, <laughs> silly stuff you realize in the middle of a talk. Like, why am I doing that? Right, but that's what, that's what a fresh perspective on salvation is, is that I deal with this me stuff. I got to get me squared away, and that's why I do think it's important. And it embraces the personal and social dimension. You see, there's a big gap right now in Christianity, right? There's a big gap between what we'll call conservative Christianity and liberal Christianity. And that is this gap of being able to hold both the personal and social dimensions together, Right? That's the real gap. The liberal church, liberal Christianity, does great in social transformation. They do great in equipping and organizing. Like I think they get the message of Paul. What was Paul doing? He was organizing. He was going from city to city, place to place of influence, and he was creating small pockets of communities that could make a difference because he thought Jesus was coming back really, really soon. That was his idea. So I'm just going to create, he was organizing, right? The way the kingdom would work. So I think we could, that's wonderful. And the liberal church will oh my gosh, tend to tell you who to vote for, tend to tell you exactly what organ and, and do beautiful, wonderful work in this kingdom mentality, but oftentimes lacks the understanding that the gospel does transform individual lives, and it transforms individual homes and marriages and neighbors and creates people who love enemies, <laughs> right? But here's the thing, like the conservative church does really well with this, with the ego, but then it gets stuck get stuck here. And we don't, we don't do a very good job of this. So I think what we're trying to do here at Crossroads is, is find this third way, this way of existence that says without personal transformation, we'll never be able to see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said to this in the story of Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, you can't see it because you're always going to be stuck in one of these two groups, right? And this third way says, hey, listen, like we're not going to wrestle with people. We're not going to attack people right? That's not what we're about. Like, we're all part of the story, okay? So listen, okay, get this. You know who's part of the story? Some of you are going to, like, get so angry at me right now. You know who's part of the story? Donald Trump. He's part of the story. Biden's part of the story. Every Democrat's part of the story. Every Republican's part of the story. Every person who doesn't vote is part of the story. Every wealthy person who's part of that 1%, they're part of the story. Every person who suffers under poverty, they're part of the story. So we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. <laughs> right? That's the metaphor. That's to be like, so, so we're all part of the story. So we wrestle and we attack ideas and policies. Right? And we say, hey, this is not about the kingdom of God. There's a huge difference there. I really do think, like, if you can't say something nice about someone, don't say anything. <laughs> Uh, say whatever you want to about a policy, say whatever you want to about a law, say whatever you want to about an idea, but don't mar and create another victim, another wound in a person that was made in the image of God. That's a different way of existence between liberal and Christian and, and conservative realities, and I think it's a path to peace on earth. I mean, I just am crazy to think that. So when we say Jesus is Lord, right, we're living in the kingdom of God. We're not trying to go to heaven, that's not what it's about. What are we doing? We're trying to bring heaven to earth. 
heaven to earth. And what is heaven? The ending of suffering, violence, injustice, poverty, fear. It's the story of the kingdom of God. And it's what Jesus said when he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for simplicity on the other side of complexity. <laughs> that it is a simple message to love, but there's a complexity to what hinders that love. And we thank you for so much wisdom in Scripture and in our tradition, and we thank you for the failings that we've participated in, that we've learned from, and we thank you for just this opportunity to participate and to see the kingdom of God. So help us live under this king and help our story to be about peace on earth so that my story, Lord, and the story of the group that I'm a part of can push me towards this big story. And let that big story be peace on earth. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna receive the connect cards and the offering this morning. The band has a great song to frustrate you, to make you angry a little bit, to question how you might be participating in the problem. While they do that, finish filling out the connect card. What's God inviting you into today? There's some next steps on the back. Maybe you want to explore more of this fresh perspective. This is your first or second time here. Next week, come and listen to this panel discussion of people who've been kind of talking and engaging with these topics. It's going to be great. We're going to have communion together next week. So maybe that's an invitation for you from God today. Maybe, maybe baptism, understanding baptism is a way of acknowledging your own commitment to follow this peacemaking path of Jesus. Maybe you want to explore that. Maybe you're, you've sensed that invitation. We didn't talk much about that today, but maybe that's sitting there. And I hope that we all are always feeling invited by God's Spirit to explore some of the leading contributors to poverty and racism and sexism or homophobia in our world and how the choices that I can make as an individual can positively affect change and rewrite these unacceptables that we talk about. So as you finish filling out your Connect cards, your offering envelope, just help, help the room host move those buckets, baskets along the way. If you're at a table, they'll collect the baskets. If you're up in the uh, bleachers, you can use the orange kiosk. And I'll be back for a blessing. And it's fitting that the blessing today, I ran through it this morning, it's super long. So just loosen up your arms. I'm just gonna tell you right now, I don't know, it's like the last week, I don't know what got into me, but there you go. So we'll be back in just a moment, get you out of here.